0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we continue our series, The Power of the Gospel. So turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, 31 to 34, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, God is for us.
1: Do you ever wonder whether or not you will make it? In 1864, William Featherstone wrote a very famous hymn, My Jesus, I Love Thee. William Featherstone was completely convinced that he would make it. For in the third line of his hymn, he wrote, I love thee in life, and I will love thee in death, and praise thee as long as thou lendest me breath, and say when the death dew lies cold on my brow, if ever I love thee, my Jesus tis now. You know, the confidence Featherstone had is remarkable. He was absolutely assured that he would die with a white-hot love for Jesus. How can one be convinced of that? I have a memory of a man whom years ago I would have considered a friend. I had prayed with him to receive Christ, and in the process, we spent much time together. At one point in time, I was called to their home, and I found out that he was leaving his wife for another woman. He told me that he and his wife had not been getting along well and that he had fallen in love with someone else. And in spite of my pleading and warning and trying to reason with him, he was not to be dissuaded. I watched him walk out on his wife, his children, his church, and his God. I ran into him years later, and I saw that there was in him not even the slightest hint of any longing for the God he once professed to have known. You know, as I relate this story, I'm filled with sadness. I'm reminded of the writer of Hebrews who in chapter 6, verses 4 to 6 wrote, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance. Now, I know, I know, that passage requires a great deal of care to understand it rightly, but still, the warning in it is real and frightening. I have a memory of a woman coming to me and pouring out her heart. She said she had married a man of another faith, and as she was at the wedding altar, the clergy person demanded of her that she renounce Jesus. You know, my jaw just dropped as she told me that. I asked her, well, what did you do? And she said, well, I was in front of everyone, and so I was afraid not to, and so I did. You know, over the years of pastoral ministry, I have memories that deeply grieve me. And I believe they have impacted me in a way that remains with me to this day. But I also know that those who are listening have experienced some of the same things. And the question we might ask is this, was the confidence of William Featherstone, who ardently believed that he would die in a white-hot love for Jesus, simply a desire? Or was his confidence based upon something that is promised to us in the gospel? You know, in the end of Romans 8, Paul answers this not by giving us an answer, but inviting us to provide our own answers to five very important questions. Let's read our text, Romans 8, 31 to 36. What shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or the sword? I want us to notice the initial question, a question I have not included among the five. Paul begins by simply asking us, what shall we say to these things? Now, what things is he talking about? No doubt he's referring to the golden chain, those five links of a wonderful chain forged by God, which forever bind us to our God. Foreknowledge, predestination, effectual calling, justification, and glorification. Five things all done by God in which God determined to make us his own. How shall we respond to these things? What are we to think now that God has revealed to us that in spite of the fact that we struggle with the flesh, have we not been given the Holy Spirit and the eternal promises of God? And have we not, by the work of God, been chained to him with a golden chain, what shall we then say? How are we to respond? And then instead of telling us how to respond, Paul invites us to forge our own response. And he does so by inviting us to answer five questions. So let's do that. Let's listen to Paul's questions, and let's very carefully answer them. Here now is question number one. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, if you're not listening carefully to his question, we might simply ignore the first part of it and concentrate only on the second part. Who can be against us? And if we ask it in that way, we might respond, well, there are plenty of people and things that are against us. The world stands against us. The culture we live, which might include the secular worldview, which simply assumes the absence of God in almost everything, is constantly around us. Whether we turn on the television or pick up a newspaper or attend a university for training or interact with work colleagues or follow the nation's politics, the worldview we live in assumes that human desires and passions trump everything. Whether it's the world of smut or the declared independence from God that pervades everything, it does seem that can be against us. Furthermore, Satan, our great enemy, stands against us. Indwelling sin and the wrestle that we have with the flesh stands against us. And our great enemy, death, stands against us. And so if we only read the second half of the question, what or who can stand against us, we would be tempted to answer actually quite a lot. But Paul didn't ask us what stood against us. He asked us if God is for us, who can stand against us. The question functions as an if-then clause. If the first part is true, what then is the answer to the second part? Let me put it in terms of an illustration we might all relate to. A number of years ago, I watched a video on the early years of Wayne Gretzky, a man many feel to be the greatest hockey player of all times. There was a time when Gretzky was playing on two different leagues, one which corresponded to his age, and the other, the age group above him. On the odd occasion, the games would overlap, and on this one occasion, he was unable to make it to the game in one league until the third period. So this is how it went. His team was playing without him, and after two periods, were behind, I think if I remember rightly, by six goals. And his team was laughing because they knew they had the other team licked. Gretzky was good for at least a dozen goals per period. And so to frame it in our terms, if you're down by only six goals at the end of the second period and Gretzky is for you, who can be against you? Now, the idea that God is for us is premised on the golden chain of verses 29 to 30. God has foreknown his people predestined them, effectually called them, justified them, and glorified them, and therefore is determined, they will rule and reign with him. And if this is so, who can stand against us? Or to put it another way, what or whom can form a legitimate threat? Do you have a legitimate opposition that you should worry about? Again, Paul allows the question just to hang there. He wants all of us to study and restudy Romans 5 to 8 and answer that question on the basis of what we have already come to know to be true. It will not do to say, but you don't know the things that I've been going through or the struggles I've had for years or the hurts and wounds that I bear or the uncertainties I cannot banish. And when you put things that way, I fear you're not answering the question that Paul has asked. He would say, yes, yes, but put these matters aside for a moment and just answer the question. If you could be convinced that God is for you, who can be against you? Now to our second question, one that also needs an urgent answer. It is found in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If I were to restate that question in my own words, I would say, will God withhold anything from his children that they genuinely need? We need some time to think about this question. Part of the question has to do with the things we genuinely need. If God gives his children all things, we might ask, what all things entails? There are, as many of us know, those who argue that the Christian gospel contains a promise that if we learn how to access it properly, should include health and long life and significant wealth and the receiving of our most cherished desires. Now we know that Paul can't mean that. Back in chapter 8, verse 28, he has told us that all things work together for the good to those who love God, and as we have seen, this must include the sufferings in which we participate in Jesus. See, God is no magical talisman, a kind of a genie in a bottle, giving us exactly what we want when we want it. The context of the passage is clear. What we need most from God are the resources that will help us to grow in holiness. And God will not give these resources sparingly. He who did not spare his son will give us all that we need for life and godliness.
0: As we arrive at these last two verses in Romans 8, Paul continues to give believers assurance of who they are in Christ based on what he's done for them. The gospel doesn't just save us, but it empowers us and gives us real and practical hope for living every day. Living in a sinful world that confronts us every day, we need this steadfast reminder. If God is for us, who can be against us? When we come back we'll address the three other questions that Paul asks in Romans chapter 8 verses 31 to 35. The Bible makes it clear there is not a single passing moment where God is not present, active, sustaining. Colossians 1:17 says, "He's before all things and in him all things hold together." How comforting to know that God is always present. That is the theme of Back to the Bible Canada's upcoming calendar. Our 2024 In All Things Scripture Reading Calendar pivots around Dr. John Newfeld's upcoming book, Arriving in the New Year. With stunning imagery, sneak peek quotes from Dr. John's book, and inspiring scripture, it reminds us that God is never far. We encourage you to request your free 2024 scripture wall calendar and follow along with a daily Bible reading plan inside. To request yours today, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.
1: We've looked at two questions Paul has asked. The first, if God is for us, who can be against us? And second, if God gave his only son for us, would he then withhold from us anything we need for living a life of godliness? Now to Paul's third question. This one is found in verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Again, we should have noticed, as before, if we only look at part of the question, we come to very different answer than if we considered the entire question. For if all we were to ask is, who can bring any charge against God's elect, we might be excused for making a rather lengthy list of charges that might be brought against us. Revelation 12, verse 10 calls Satan the accuser of our brothers. He is called that, according to the book of Revelation, because he accuses us before God day and night. In other words, he never stops doing so. But who else accuses us? Well, for one, I might argue there are times when my own conscience accuses me. At times, it seems that Scripture itself, which demands my obedience and holiness, rises up to strip away my pretenses and shows me those areas of my life that remain and are still displeasing to my Savior. And of course, there are always those out there, I mean, people who don't love me and don't seek my good, who would gladly accuse me when they witness the shortcomings in my life. Indeed, it seems that there are enough accusers so that I might never rise to my feet and simply be glad in the Lord. But again, as we have noticed with the first question that Paul's asked, this is not the question. Since it is God who has justified me through the death of Christ who suffered for my sins so that the justice of God is satisfied, what then is left that can still be charged against my account? Answer that question, says the apostle. But still he's not done. Here now is his fourth question, and this one is found in verse 34. Who is to condemn? Now the question is a different one than who is to accuse. Accusation must be leveled at Christ, who took my sins on himself, but condemnation—this is the final result of accusation. Condemnation results in hell, in an eternity of torment, the just sentence upon all who defame the glory of God. But this question, unlike all the questions that have been asked before, have only one answer. You know, perhaps it is true that many are arrayed against us, and perhaps it is true that Satan may accuse us, but there can be only one answer to who is worthy to condemn us. God alone is able to condemn us. Satan cannot do so. Our accusers also cannot. The final judgment belongs to God alone. I wonder if we've truly grasped this. When Isaiah first saw the Lord, recorded in Isaiah 6, he he cried out, I'm undone. When the parents of Samson first saw the angel of the Lord, once realizing what they had seen, they were terrified and thought they would surely die. Hebrews 1030 to 31 says, For we know him who says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, the reason I mention this matter is that for so many people, if you're to ask them what their greatest concern is in life— They might answer, you know, anything from illness to death to demons to false accusations to making mistakes that might harm them to failing to accomplish their goals. We say these things because we really have no idea of who God is. See, the most horrifying thing that can happen to anyone is to fall into the hands of the living God and to be judged by him. His holiness is a terrifying holiness. See, one of the reasons so many of us seem so unconcerned about our sin is, in truth, we are unconcerned about the God of the Bible. We have never as much as allowed ourselves the possibility that a being exists who would drown the entire world by a flood at the time of Noah, or a God who will defend his glory with such fierce jealousy that he will sentence all men and women to ceaseless suffering in eternity, for he knows the glory of his name is infinitely worth more than the glory of all other things combined. You know, in today's world where so many have substituted the idols of their imagination for the God of the Bible, the issue of the condemnation of him who is holy has just never entered into their minds. The question of who it is that condemns is answered with the most terrifying of all answers. It is God who condemns. It is God who unflinchingly and unblinkingly takes detailed notes of all of our sins. That is who condemns, and that's the answer to Paul's question, and that's the most searching of all his questions. And yet by asking the question, Paul must give us a thought before we answer. Christ Jesus who died, he says, is at the right hand of the Father, at the place of prominence, and there the one who died for us is interceding for us. He is right now doing so. Furthermore, his nail-pierced hands and his riven side, his wounds themselves intercede on our behalf, and after so great an intercession is made by the one who has been given the name which is above every name. With this scene being played out, the Apostle Paul now asks us again, who is to condemn? And then in an instant, we know the answer. No one condemns. And with that, Paul has yet one more question we need to answer. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then in order to help us identify possibilities, he asks, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Immediately, we should be able to see what Paul is driving at in his fifth question. He's not asking us whether there is something that can stop Christ from loving us, for in the previous questions, we've already been asked that. Now he asks us the other way around. Is there anything that can stop us from loving Christ? And I think this is an excellent question because... We might be assured that, given the fact that Paul has already taught us about the golden chain that binds us to God, that God, through the gospel of his Son, is committed to us. But am I committed to God? And then, I look at the list of things that might tend to threaten my love for Christ. They include all the hardships of life and the hardships that come my way as I seek to follow Jesus. The theme here, surely the theme of persecution and troubles or tribulations that come to my life because of the gospel. Will the cost of discipleship become so great that after putting my hand to the plow that I might look back and turn from it? And if truth be told, that question is for many of us the most difficult of this group of five questions. But should it be? See, the reason I ask this is because of what Paul has already taught us. Back in chapter 6, we are told that when we came to Christ, we were put to death along with Christ and raised with him as well. And we were given a strong promise in chapter 8, verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. And that brings me back to my friend who left his wife, his children, his church, and his God, and abandoned them all for the arms of another man's wife. Could I be like him? Or can I have the assurance of William Featherstone, who was convinced he would die with a white-hot love for Jesus? You know, given that you were crucified with Christ and raised to new life, and given that you are not of the flesh, but that you have really been given a new heart so that you find God's laws to be your delight. So that when your flesh overwhelms your will and you sin, is it still not true that according to Romans 7:21, that you delight or find joy or find your greatest joy in the law of God and in the things of God? And if that's true, that this is the heart that God has placed in you, do you think you are capable of stopping the love of Christ that has been birthed in your heart? or have you noticed that you are a slave of Christ for he has purchased you with his blood? Join me tomorrow as we finally sum up this discussion of the security of the believer.
0: John, what can be said? That's a a full message. There's lots there. But the thing that comes to mind is when you mentioned the fact that, you know, if we're not careful, we can just take segments of a portion of Scripture or, in this sense, Paul's questions, and we take just one part of it. But we really do need to be careful to take the whole context of what the Word says.
1: Sure, which is a great Bible study principle anyway, so that we always you know, recognize that when we quote a verse, what's the context of the verse? We quote a part of a verse, what's the context of that? But in this case, it's specifically important. If we're going to gain some sense of assurance in our salvation, William Featherstone, you know, when the death dew lies cold on my brow, I will know that I love Jesus. Can I have confidence there? That's what Paul is trying to give us. And so those questions, I would encourage us to go over them again in our minds, think about them afresh in relationship to the promises that God has made us and come to the conclusion that we should come to, that God is for us and we can be like William Featherstone.
0: I hope that today's message has not only encouraged you, but caused you to reflect on these questions and the promise that God is for us. Well, that leaves us with only two more messages left in this series, The Power of the Gospel, with Dr. John Newfeld. Listen again tomorrow as we look at the security of the believer from Romans chapter 8, verses 35-38. to 38. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. It's never too early to start planning your travels for the new year. And our April 2024 cruise is filling up faster than we'd imagined. You won't wanna miss this incredible opportunity to vacation and be under the direct teaching of Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh and be encouraged with Laugh Against Phil Calloway and share moments of musical inspiration with special guest, Amanda Stott. From April 5th to the 14th, we'll sail through several stunning locations within the Caribbean, including Miami, Porta Plata, St. John's, and more. For more information, to download the itinerary or to sign up, just visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. And please note that with all ministry travel events, no ministry funds are used and all related costs are covered by participants.